Hello there, it's Susie New here, ASA President, and I am super excited. I'm about to record a podcast with Kate Cole, who is an occupational hygienist. Not usually the type of person I would talk to about things, but given coronavirus and COVID and the concern many people have about their PPE, and particularly about fit testing, I thought this would be a good opportunity to reach out to somebody very much outside our usual mix. So here we go. Thank you so much for for making this time to speak with me this morning. Oh, you're welcome. You're an occupational hygienist, is that right? I am, yes. I just and have I said that right? You have. Okay, good. That, that leads me to believe that you have never heard that term before, potentially. Is I, that right? It's exactly so. <laughs> it is exactly for you. It's probably totally mind-boggling, um, and it's just exposed so many questions. Now I think about what what have we been doing all this time. <laughs> Well, um, look, occupational hygienists, we're you know, scientists and engineers and we're really the health in health and safety. So we specialise in protecting worker health and that could be from a variety of different hazards. In my situation, for example, I look at health risks in construction, demolition and infrastructure. So things like silicosis or diesel emissions or asbestos or occupational noise or legionella or any of those things that can cause illness in workers. So we work to protect workers from a range of health hazards and and then on the other side, working to promote worker health. So what can we do in that space to get it even better to, than what it already is? And that's where sort of the well-being side of it comes into it. So we're really the health in health and safety. And so that's why occupational hygienists, I would say, are very good at understanding when certain control measures, say, around face masks or respiratory protection should be used or when they're appropriate to be used and the, the type and all the different things that come about their effective use to protect worker health. Uh, so much of what you say, you know, aligns with the principles of the ASA. We're, we're really about sort of protecting, you know, and even just in Australia, welfare is important to our members and, um, and, and as well at the moment, our physical safety. Do occupational hygienists typically work with industry more, more than you have in, say, healthcare? Um, I think there are occupational hygienists that work in healthcare. Primarily, a lot of us work in industry. I, to be honest, we work in a range of sectors. So outside of construction, there's a significant number of hygienists that work in mining, in oil and gas, in manufacturing, um, in academia, in research. So it's, it's very widespread. So typically we'll go and work in some really high-risk areas, hence construction and mining and, and manufacturing and oil and gas and those sorts of things because there are a significant number of health risks that workers can be exposed to. So it's incredibly important that we're working to eliminate or mitigate those risks so that those companies can continue to provide a safe working environment for, for their workforce um, and also have a productive business. Yeah. yeah, a lot of us do work in those types of industries, but I, I do know of some occupational hygienists that primarily work in more of, more of a, a hospital setting or healthcare. Maybe I won't go into it too much because I've done another podcast where we've looked at the hierarchy of hazard controls. Oh, good. And, you know, many anaesthetists would have never have heard of those uh, controls before. And whereas I think you would have probably spent a long time studying them and know them quite intimately. 
the premise behind the hierarchy of controls is a good one to pick up. And I guess I can kind of explain it, the difference between a healthcare setting and a construction worker setting really easily when it comes to what you're talking about, which is you know eliminating that risk of, of, of patients. So in a construction setting, we can work really high in the, in the hierarchy of controls and say, well, we, 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 you don't come to work if you're sick. So if you have a, a fever, if you have any of these symptoms, these signs, then, then don't come to work. And that's a really good control measure. You're obviously not able to do that in your work setting because you're treating the people that actually need your help. Exactly. So you don't have the benefit of that specific control measure and therefore you have to put in place a whole bunch of other control measures lower down on the hierarchy to make sure that that risk is still mitigated. And it's for that reason that we tend not to or we don't recommend the use of like really low order controls outside of healthcare and I'm talking about say respiratory protection or face masks or things like that in a community setting or in a workplace setting where there is you know where we can eliminate COVID or we can ask people not to attend work as opposed to in a healthcare setting where actually you know that these people are coming to you and you know that they're coming at some point and you have to be protected and so there's a whole layer of control measures that, that, that are needed and one really important one at the bottom of it underpinning all of it is that whole respiratory protection as well. Absolutely. We are so reliant on our PPE, especially anaesthetists, because we're doing the intubations of these high-risk patients generally. And so, you know, we've, we've had to overcome all of those control measures. We can't eliminate. We can't substitute them out. We've got to do the job. Nah. There's no one else. You know, we can't put the signs up to say don't enter this zone. We've got to go into that hot zone. Um, yes. And we just got to get on and do it. And I think that's the main thing I wanted to talk to you about with today is just all your experience with the respiratory protective equipment and particularly fit testing. There's been so much debate about this. Uh, it's very clear from our point of view. So in order for respiratory protection to be effective, it has to be used and, and worn by the wearer appropriately. So you have to make sure that the risk control measure that's being provided to a worker, so in this case, an anaesthetist or a doctor or a nurse or someone in that front line, have to make sure that when that's being provided, that it's not just handed and there's a little check sheet to say, yes, I received it, but it's actually being done in a whole respiratory protection program. And we're really fortunate in Australia. We have great standards that we require our respiratory protection to meet. And then we have great standards on what we require to be implemented to use respiratory protection. So one bit of it is providing it and the next bit is using it. So when we provide it, we make sure that it meets the Australian standard. And unfortunately in Australia and actually internationally, there's been a huge influx of counterfeit respiratory protection flooding our market so it's making it a little bit difficult for businesses to sort of wade through to find products that actually do meet our Australian standards but once that's found and I'm talking about Australian standard 1716 we have to make sure it complies with that once that's found and we're giving it to our workers then we have to make sure that we follow the next Australian standard which is 1715 which is all about the use and unless we're doing that we're really not fulfilling our obligations to make sure that that that, that our workers are protected so key things in that standard rely on making sure that the respirator is fit for purpose so it's the right type and I'm talking about whether it's a P2 or it's a full face with P3 cartridges or it's a powered air purifying respirator it's not one size fits all so there's all different risks we've got to make sure it's the right one and that's typically where occupational hygienists get involved is in the selection to make sure it's the right type that it's matching the hazard and the risk and the next thing is the use so we have to make sure that everyone's given a respirator fit test 
to make sure that that respirator fits them appropriately. Because we all have different sized faces. Some of us have thin faces, some of us have wide faces, we're all different. And even though PPE manufacturers would do their best to produce a, a face mask that meets the majority of people, there's always going to be some people that it won't fit. And that's why we have so many different products on the market to choose from. And if we don't do a respiratory fit test when we're giving somebody a respirator, then we're really missing that crucial step of going, well, does this fit and is that actually going to be providing the appropriate protection that that mask was designed for. So in high-risk industries, respiratory protection is relied upon. So if I look at construction, we would use something like a P2 face mask or we might use a full face face mask as well. We would never give that to a worker and say, well, off you go, just use that. We would always do it in accordance with the program. So we'd make sure that we'd provide training and how to use it and the limitations of using it. So what it doesn't do, how you care for it, how you know when to change it. A lot of them are disposable and they don't last forever. So we need to make sure we're explaining to people when you need to change it. need to make sure it's fit tested and we do this every 12 months in accordance with our Australian standard. And it sounds like quite frequently, right, to do a fit test, but people's faces can change in 12 months. You can go on a diet, you might be extra happy, uh, all different things happen, you might be pregnant, all things happen with your face shape. So you can actually change over time. And so that fit test is just that check once a year to make sure, yep, this is still working and Bob's your uncle. The Australian standard also has a bunch of things in there around making sure that, you know, the records are kept, manuals are, are available and all the other things that go into it. This is pretty routine standard practice in high-risk industries. So for us, it's not, I guess, what may have been referred to as the gold standard. For us, this is business as usual and this is how this works across our country. Can I ask you about the fit testers? What training, if any, is required? You know, are there definitions as to who makes up a fit tester? Well, it has to be a competent person um, and there is an outline of what sort of information that competent person has to know in the Australian standards. Occupational hygienists are very often, we very often perform fit testing in high-risk industries, but it's not just us. So we have also been involved in training other people to be fit testers. So there's no sort of special card or certified training. It's just a series of competencies that you have to hold. So we can train other people to undertake fit testing for people that's fine as long as we've gone through each one of these points and the people that will be doing the training can demonstrate that they've understood and they can demonstrate that they can do those particular tasks when they're doing fit testing that's good to know because I think it was the CDC that have recommended a a sort of way that you can do a train the trainer and roll that out so it's good to know that we've already got that included in our Australian standard yeah and I have heard people just going out and buying a porter count machine okay testing other people on the kitchen bench kind of thing what, what do you think of that well a, a porta cap machine is it's quite an expensive piece of equipment however it is quite intuitive that's what we would term quantitative fit testing so there's two different types um, and quantitative fit testing is looking at the number of particles inside the mask and outside the mask and it's giving you a fit factor and it's a nice way of, of demonstrating that that respirator fits workers it wouldn't be my preferred way just to buy a port account and start fit testing because you'd want to make sure that you are acutely aware of the requirements in Australian Standard 17, 16 and 17, 15 and make sure that you're covering each one of those items when performing fit testing because that fit testing process we use as that great opportunity as hygienists and a worker on the other side to actually impart really important knowledge that they're going to need to know to keep themselves safe. And if fit testing 
is just for hooking someone up to a machine, leaving their head a little bit of times and then and moving on. I've actually lost that great opportunity to have an engaging conversation about how important this is and how crucial all these different steps are so that they know what the limitations are of what they're about to use. Because respiratory protection is really low down on the hierarchy of control for a reason. It relies on people doing the right thing 100% of the time. So straps are always up, you know, it's always put on correctly, it's always done this way. And the reality is that people wearing PPE and healthcare workers included are thinking of many other things at the time. You're probably thinking of the, um, the, the well-being of the patient that you're caring for more so than, oh, is my strap on correctly? You're thinking of other things. Construction workers are thinking of all these other things as well because we're, we're doing so many things in our day-to-day job. That's why it's so low on the control hierarchy. Respiratory protection is really easy to fail. Couldn't agree more. And definitely the experience when I've talked to other people who've had a fit testing program in their hospitals, they said it was the educational component of it was even more important than they thought than finding out what mask was the right fit for them. Yeah. Um, just because in all the troubleshooting and the actual experience of knowing what it feels like when it fits correctly. And I think it's really important, I suppose, when we're doing fit testing, like say in an institution, that, that you're training your colleagues at the same time because we end up supporting each other for our PPE. So it's good to, you know, have everyone on the same page so that we can be consistent with each other. Yeah, and it's also, there's an element in that in having that culture of looking out for each other so that if you see someone whose face mask isn't on correctly, it's not because, you know, that they've meant it to be that way. They're probably thinking about something else and it's having that safe culture of going, oh, hey, mate, I can see it's not on. Let me help you or... You know, because it's looking out for their health. And so that nice culture of going, okay, thanks. You know, I was thinking about something else. Or like being in that safe place where people can actually do that is a great thing. But you're only going to get there if everyone understands what the limitations and benefits are of using respiratory protection. If you've missed that whole training bit, then no one really knows. And, you, yeah, it all sort of falls apart. That's such a good point. I wanted to also ask you about the counterfeit masks because I've been okay. offered a lot of N95s and I know you've set up a great service on Twitter. If anyone is on Twitter, please follow you. You're at Kate <laughs> underscore Cole um, where we can post our photos and you give very quick replies um, about whether they're counterfeit. Well, it's kind of easy, unfortunately, at this point. Obviously easy to you, the trained eye, because I, I really can't tell the difference. So what are some of the things that you look for that tell you that something is counterfeit? The easiest way to tell that something's counterfeit is through the KN95 masks. So in those masks, we're looking for product markings. So we're looking for a unique identifier. We're looking for a brand or a model or some sort of serial number. We're looking for something that makes that unique. And when you see a KN95 mask with the letters KN95 on it and nothing else, that's really easy to go, well, that's 100% counterfeit. Because it actually doesn't even meet the Chinese standard, GB2626, because there's product marking requirements in that standard for it to meet. So that's probably the, the easiest. The second one, the N95s are also quite easy because thankfully NIOSH in the USA lists out all of their approved N95 particulate filtering face piece respirators online. So you can look at the manufacturer's stamp on the face mask itself. You can look it up on NIOSH and see if it's there. If it's not there, you can also look it on the NIOSH counterfeit respirator website. If you Google it, it pops up and most likely you'll find it there. And I can't believe you just quoted the Chinese <laughs> standard number as well. <laughs> so I'd say that the most common counterfeit masks we're seeing in Australia are, are unfortunately those KN95s. I'm sure there are some legitimate KN95 products out there. 
there. We just haven't seen them yet, or I haven't seen them yet in Australia. We're also seeing some counterfeit face masks from the EU or the UK, and that they term these face masks FFP2, which is essentially equivalent to what we would call a P2 or an N95. And they're also quite easy to spot, and that comes down to product markings. And the British Occupational Hygiene Society, or the BOHS, actually last night, 2am our time, uh, released a really nice handy guide on how to spot a fake FFP2 from the UK. But we're mainly looking at product markings. And then when we find products where the markings are okay, we'll reach out to the supplier and say, can you give me a documentation? And that's normally where a lot of these counterfeit products are falling through. Wow. And like I said at the beginning, we're really lucky in Australia. We have amazing standards. And Australian Standard 1716 is great. There's three bodies that will certify respiratory protection to be like a P2 respirator, for example, which is equivalent to N95. Um, and it's really easy to look them up online to verify if they're legitimate or not. So it's very rare for us to find counterfeit P2s, although we've found just one in the past couple of months. And unfortunately, it's very common to find counterfeit respirators coming in from the international market. And what I might ask you to do, Kate, if that's okay, is just to share with me some of those links and I'll put them up on our ASA forum so our ASA members can look them up for themselves when they come out. Oh, yes, happy to. That would be great. Thank you. Because I know some people who bought some masks and when I fed back to them that these were likely to be counterfeit, the reply that came back to me was, well, they've fit tested them with the port account and they got a good pass on it. So <laughs> can, can a counterfeit mask do its job? Well, it, it's possible that you can pass a fit test on a counterfeit mask, but doing a fit test does not replace all of the stringent testing requirements that are listed in our Australian standards. I've seen people on... You you know, Twitter or Facebook showing that mask work by wearing it and trying to blow out a candle and, or putting water in it and it doesn't leak and I'm like, will that work? I'm like, well, these are just not relevant tests in relation to whether a respirator filters out more than 95% of particular. It's actually just not a relevant test. So it is possible to get a fit test on a counterfeit mask, yes, but that does not mean that that mask is actually filtering out the particle that you think it is. It doesn't mean it's operating to the equivalent of a P2. It doesn't mean it's operating to the equivalent of N95 and that's why we have these standards in place if it was easy anyone would do it but it's not and that's why we have a certification system and we use accredited laboratories to undertake this independent testing so are there other criteria that they look at that there's other things that they should be testing on not just you know port account on your kitchen bench kind of testing? no there's other things you should be testing so you know in the Australian standard it talks about a challenge test using sodium chloride or otherwise and we're looking at you know how the the respirator filter media behaves in a certain way under certain conditions. There's testing around the sort of head strap and the, the tension or the amount of strength that they have to hold. When you're putting a face mask on for a fit test, you're wearing it for 15 minutes. That's not the same as being on the front line wearing that mask for 12 hours and expecting it to provide a really good level of protection. So there are a number of tests in the Australian standard that go above and beyond. The fit test is a supplementary test to make sure that that face mask fits you, but it cannot substitute all the independent testing that's required that demonstrate that that mask was manufactured to a certain standard. But along the lines with this, and I think what's added confusion, is the TGA exemption for PPE. Do you know much about that? And can you explain how we you know, can interpret that? 
Well, I understand that since I think it was March the 22nd that the TGA has been operating under an exemption for coronavirus medical devices. And I understand that what that means is that it's negated the need for these products to undergo certain checks and balances to verify certification. So if you looked on the TGA sort of website and you looked at which products have obtained TGA approval since March 22nd, you will see a huge influx of new products that have come on the market. And all of those products have received TGA certificate. And so when you're asking for you know, evidence of approval, evidence of certification, I'm often being provided a TGA certificate to show that a product is an N95. Because on the certificate, the manufacturer has told the TGA, well, this is a public N95 respirator. Now, under that exemption, there's no checks and balances. It's gone through. TGA has provided a certificate for use. But unfortunately, the check and balance that's normally there, which, for example, would be verifying that that product is indeed an N95, is gone. So from a hygienist perspective, what that means is that the TGA certificate is a bit of a moot point. It doesn't mean anything for us anymore. We have to still go and undertake independent checks to make sure that if someone's claiming something is an N95, that it actually is. When I've looked through the number of companies that have received a TGA certificate since March 22nd, a vast majority of those are claiming that their product is an N95 and on further inspection, in fact, it is not. So it's something to be aware of is that that TGA certificate is not a hard and fast guarantee that a N95 mask is in fact an N95 mask. That is really good to know because I know a lot of people just see the TGA certificate and just have assumed that that means it's approved and haven't done the further research. So thank you for pointing that out. I'm so impressed that you know so much about the standards. Well, unfortunately, yes, and unfortunately, no. Occupational hygienists, we do a lot of work in the higher order of control. We're engineers, so a lot of us do a lot of work around ventilation and extraction, and we're looking at engineering controls to mitigate a risk. But unfortunately, and particularly coronavirus as an example, there's very limited engineering controls that we can apply in such a short time frame. So unfortunately, yeah, a lot of our, our work has been in this lower level control of respiratory protection. But I think it's really important that we make sure that we are not, or healthcare workers are not the people that have to learn these lessons that have previously been learned by industries in the past. And what I'm talking about is, you know, in industry, there are lots of hazards that we use PPE to control the risk in addition to other control measures like engineering, etc. And one would be, say, silica dust or silicosis. And in the past, things around respiratory fit testing or the type of mask or making sure that we've got a respiratory protection program in place haven't been that great. And unfortunately, that's led to a lot of people being diagnosed with silicosis. And off the back of that, there's been a lot of work to make sure that respiratory protection programs are actually really stringent and they're, and they're really improved. And so what we don't want to see as hygienists is that the healthcare worker or healthcare industry has to then go and relearn that lesson. That lesson should already be learned and we should be making sure that we protect frontline medical workers with the same standard as they would construction workers. I couldn't agree more. One of the reasons we hear that people are not introducing respiratory programs at the moment is the pandemic has already started. Resources are in tight supply. The supply chain to Australia is limited, particularly of N95 masks. People are worried that they, if they use all their N95 masks now for testing, there won't be any left for when you know a lot more patients come in through the door and we actually really need them to, to manage this patient right in front of us. Well, that's, 
it's a good question and I think it comes down to maybe confusion around what fit testing involves. So we mentioned before the port account and that's quantitative fit testing. But under the Australian standard, there's another method which is qualitative fit testing. And when you use qualitative fit testing, you're not ruining a mask. You're able to reuse that mask after fit testing. So if I can try to explain qualitative fit testing over the phone, it's having the respirator on or your face mask on and it's this little space hood that you put over your head and it rests on your shoulders and the fit tester is actually spraying a substance into the hood and that substance might be saccharin which is really sweet or it might be bitrex which is really bitter and if we use bitrex for example when we're doing fit testing we're trying to see if that bitrex makes its way into the participant's mouth or nose and as soon as it does you will notice their eyes go oh wow that's really bitter (laughs) it's really hard to fake a qualitative fit testing using Bitrex. They're spraying it in and you're checking to see if you can actually taste or smell that solution. That's the qualitative method of doing it. And in many cases across high-risk industries, qualitative fit testing is used as a supplement to quantitative fit testing. So there's no hard and fast law that you have to use one or the other. And in the case of what we're going through with coronavirus internationally, most occupational hygienists are using qualitative fit testing for that reason because it doesn't waste the mark. But it's still providing that level of comfort and fulfilling that requirement that yes we have done a fit test on on our workers and yes it it does actually fit them and this is the make and model that they're going to use because I will point out you have to do a fit test for any different type of respirator that you use so if you get a whole new batch in and you've never used them before you have to refit test your workers so it pays to have a really good stock of supply wherever possible of the one type but if if we don't have the luxury of doing that which in many cases we probably don't in our current environment then we're really talking about a 15 minute a 15 minute process and given the amount of risk that's imposed on frontline workers I would suggest that 15 minutes is time well spent. Good to know and I know the CDC in America have come out with similar guidance in terms of doing what they call just-in-time fit testing. Yeah. I want to ask you if I can about reusable masks and you mentioned them before the PAPAs or the powered air purifying respirators. I know some people have just gone out to Bunnings or other companies and bought them. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts there? Should they be getting a fit test for those or can you just do it yourself there's kind of two in there so the reusable face mask which might be say the half face mask and you can put cartridges in them like a p2 filter for example or a p3 filter it doesn't matter it's still a p2 it's only a half face mask anything that's tight fitting around your face needs a fit test whether or not it's reusable or disposable. So 100% they still need to be fit tested. The next level up or couple of levels up, which would be the powered air purifying respirators, they're like bit of a, a hood and a belt and there's a tube from the belt to the hood that's blowing clean air through a set of filters over the wearer, over their face. They're not close face fitting around the, their face. They're, they're quite loose. And due to the fact that you've got air blowing over your face, PAPR is generally not, uh, you don't have to do any fit testing. However, PAPRs across Australia tend to be in extremely short supply as well because they're also used in high-risk industries, such as the one that I work in. And we found it really difficult to get supply of PAPRs just like we have disposable respirators as well because it all comes from overseas. Big supply chain problems, isn't it? You did mention ventilation. Are you happy if I, I pick your brain a little bit about 
about operating theatre ventilation? I understand it may not be an area that you've had to consider before. It's it's an area that I've probably only ever been in an operating theatre once in my life, so I don't know if I'm going to do much else. In your field, would there, um, would there be subspecialists who would look at this? Definitely. So there's, there's subspecialists that will look at indoor air quality and definitely HVAC systems. Yes, and I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of put you in touch with some. I, I will also say the best place to find an occupational hygienist if you if you're looking for one is our institute so we're all members of the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists the AIOH and there is a directory on the AIOH website I'll send you the link and on there you can actually tick the sort of speciality there's a lot of hygienists that are generalists but there there are also a significant number that specialize just like in the medical profession how you have certain levels of accreditation we have the same thing in occupational hygiene. So we have different sort of grades, I guess, as, as you may call it. And so whenever you're after sort of specialist advice to help, we recommend that you reach out to a certified occupational hygienist because that's our equivalent of our highest level of competency in this area. So when you're looking for a consultant, I'd recommend that you're looking for a COH and you can find them on the AIOH website. Great. Good to know. It's better than a bunch of us just making it up. <laughs> so you know what? You may have done a fabulous job and that person can just help you with maybe tweak it. You never know. <laughs> very diplomatic. And look, I can't finish a chat with you without talking about welfare because that's obviously something very close to my heart as well. I think when coronavirus was first emerging on our shores, a lot of people were very, very anxious about our lack of preparation and our lack of PPE. But now what I'm sensing is, I read an interesting article about it the other day, that we think of burnout as being in response to excessive work pressures, that these people describe that you can have features of burnout, so disengagement, loss of empathy, but in the setting of being a very skilled person and being very under-challenged and also having a lack of control. And yeah. that's what I perceive at the moment. Everyone's prepared or preparing and they're waiting for this front to arrive that hasn't yet. And it is causing causing tension when people didn't expect that they would be feeling tense at this time. Have you got any thoughts on that? I think and it's really difficult for us, particularly myself, not being in the type of environment that frontline healthcare workers like yourself are in. All I can say from the outside looking in is that we that we have an immense level of respect for yourself and everybody else that is working really really hard to to, to treat the, the outcomes of this pandemic it would be amiss of me to sort of comment on on well-being in that setting other than to say that we have an enormous amount of respect and I think from my personal perspective I am just in absolute awe at the work that's been done in all of our hospitals to try to get us up to the point to be prepared because it, it helps us as a general public feel safer about our possible outcome. But yeah, just an enormous amount of respect. You know, we do a lot of work in our own industries in trying to make sure that we've equipped our teams with the tools that they need and that we're checking in on everyone and we're looking out for everybody's well-being. But we have the benefit of time. Like we have the benefit of not being in a rush in some in some areas or not having this wave of cases coming in all all the time because we're in a different completely different environment thanks Kate. that's really lovely words and i think a lot of people will will, will appreciate hearing those so thank you um, you're welcome it's been really wonderful chatting with you are there any final sort of key messages that you'd like to share with anesthetists of australia 
Just thank you for all the work that you're doing. You know, there's a lot of specialist professions out there that, that work to protect um, people's health and safety and we'd love to help in any way. So if you reach out like you have done, Susie, more than happy to help. So even if it's a simple thing of checking if a face mask is not counterfeit, if that's how we can contribute to your health and well-being, we can do that for you, no problem. All the way through to looking at uh, plans on how to make sure that risks are, are mitigated such that you're operating as far as practicable in a safe working environment that enables you to go home safely to your family and your friends and continue the great work that you're doing we're always here to help oh that's lovely to hear that's a very generous offer but i really hope that there's some people out there that take you up on it thank you very much no, you're welcome thank you for your twitter post as well if anyone has got an n95 that they've bought recently and they're not sure whether it's counterfeit or not feel free to either find kate on twitter which is at kate underscore cole or even find me on twitter i'm at snoozin or email us and i can ask kate on your behalf it's just been wonderful thank you so much for your time kate no you're more than welcome more than welcome Well, that was a really wonderful chat with Kate Cole, who's an occupational hygienist, so much that she knows about fit testing and the standards and PPE and controlling hazards, all those sorts of things. I have mentioned in earlier podcasts, for people who haven't been fit tested and would like to be fit tested, the ASA is looking into this, uh, enabling this service around Australia with a qualified fit tester. It looks like the company that we are going to recommend or go with also can provide some disposable masks for fit testing it is better of course if you bring your own from the hospital that uh, you'll be working in so that you are tested on the masks that are available to you rather than the ones that have been available from a tester this tester that we're also likely to go with is also an on seller for reusable face masks and that is one strategy that people have used to help overcome the issues with supply chain if you want to know more about those then I suggest that you listen to the podcast I did with Santa Robinson, Ange Baker and Paul Pham, very informative podcast on fit testing and reusable masks. But if you are interested in fit testing then please do get in contact with us asa at asa.org.au via email. If you can it'd be great to hear from you in the next few days as we are looking into finalising our agreements with the various fit testing companies. So I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast today I certainly did very interesting always talking to someone outside of your usual sort of professional mix and hopefully some of you have worked with occupational hygienists that would really reassure me it sounds like they have a lot to offer so thanks for listening and stay safe out there This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance, part one by Maydan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.